And I'm grateful that I get to preach to you this morning and spend time in God's Word. We're at the final part of our Cries of the King series, and I can think of nothing better than the cry of victory to finish with. And so we're going to read just a few verses in John 19, from verses 28 to 30. It'll come up on the screen, so if you don't have a Bible, don't worry. If you do have a Bible, let's turn there. Let's read the Word of the Lord together. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Let's pray. Well, Lord, what a wonderful day to gather around your word and to gather around this moment where it really was finished. Lord, did you help me this morning in my weakness? I believe that puts me as a candidate to receive strength from you. And so, Lord, I do pray, would you strengthen my voice? And Lord, would you open the eyes of people's hearts to behold the glory of who you really are and your splendor and your beauty? Would our lives, all of us, would they be changed as a result as we realize this is true and he has risen? In Jesus' precious name, amen. You know, throughout world history, there have been so many great things said over so many different years. Quotes and speeches from people like Abraham Lincoln, uh, Winston Churchill and Nelson Mandela and Martin Luther King. Quotes and speeches, often wise, often inspiring, some even world-changing and world-renowned. And yet in all world history, there has never been a greater speech or quote ever uttered than this one here in John 19. With these words, it is finished. In the Greek, this cry of three words is actually only one word. It's the word tetelestai. And it is without doubt a world-changing cry. What we hear here are not the moans of a defeated man or the patient, the patient sigh of resignation, but instead a cry of victory. A cry of victory that is filled with depth, that is filled with mystery, that is filled with all history. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, understanding that this is just one word, tetelestai, he says this. He says, it would need all the other words that have ever been spoken or can ever be spoken to explain this one word. It is altogether immeasurable. It is high, I cannot attain it. And it is deep, I cannot fathom it. And how true that is. It is filled with depth. It is filled with history. It is filled with meaning. And everything comes together in this phrase, it is finished. And so this morning, understanding how powerful that phrase is, I want us to spend some time stopping and staring at this incredible cry of victory. And it's my prayer that for all of us in the room, we would be amazed we would be inspired and that we truly will be exhilarated by what we see. And when I say all, I really mean all of us. See, for so many years of my life, I went to church like every week. I, went, I was one of those people that went to church in my mother's womb, okay? There's never been a week where I haven't really been around at church. And yet, this verse 
And these types of cries meant nothing to me. I wasn't too bothered at all. I was coming to church because the snacks were pretty cool. And it is finished. Never made any sense to me. And I'm confident that there will be some gathered here this morning that would say exactly the same thing. How long is this guy going to be so we can get into the snacks? Because I haven't got a clue what he's on about. Well, it's my prayer that as we stop and stare at this cry this morning, all of us would gather around Calvary and be affected to the core of who we are. Because this is true. So what does it all mean? What was finished? Well, there were four things really that were really taking place here with regard to being finished. And it's those four things that I want us to stop and stare at this morning, understanding that this is without doubt filled with depth and history and meaning. So what is finished? Well, number one, the search for the serpent crusher was finished. You know, for me growing up, as I said a moment ago, I went to church like all the time, which meant when I was small, I went to kids ministry. It was kind of nice. You know, you played games and stuff. But as part of the games, you always used to hear a story. And so I grew up thinking the Bible was just filled with lots of stories, random stories that told us things about God. They were kind of interesting sometimes, sometimes a little far-fetched. They appeared to me when I was 12 years old. But I didn't understand that all these stories actually came together to make one story. One story that runs throughout the entirety of the Bible from Genesis through to Revelation. And they're all stories about Jesus and his great work of salvation. And this whole story then from Genesis to Revelation starts in Genesis with a search for a serpent crusher. You see, in Genesis chapter 1, we read that God actually made us. He made men and women. He made us equal in our value and worth and dignity. And he made us to reflect his very glory, to reflect to everybody else what he is like in his character and his worth and in his dignity. And all was going pretty well. God was dwelling with man in perfect unity. But we only get three chapters in, which is not very far in a lot of pages, where mankind decides to reject God and just go their own way. The one thing that God said, don't do this, is the one thing they made their way and exactly did that. And because of that, because of eating the forbidden fruit, sin came into the world. And in that moment, God in his holiness can't just dwell with our sinful mankind. And so he actually pushed Adam and Eve, he pushed original mankind out of the garden, but he always made it clear that there would be a way back in, a way to come and spend time with him again, a way to be right with God. And in Genesis 3.15, he looks at Satan who had done the deceiving in the first place, He makes it clear to Satan that one will come, and although you will bruise his heel, he will crush your head. I love that. That's like no messing language right there. They're then removed from the garden, and Adam and Eve start to wonder, so who's it going to be? And the hunt for the serpent crushers starts to take place. Well, Adam and Eve, they have a baby, and they call him Cain. And Cain actually means in the Hebrew, possession. You know, it's likely that they actually thought this is the one that will help us take possession of the Garden of Eden again. It'll get us back in. Negative. He actually killed his brother instead. It didn't go so well. They got further and further away from the garden. So who's it going to be? Who is this serpent crusher that's going to get us back to God? Get us spending time with God again in unity and joy and peace. Is it going to be Abraham? Isaac? Jacob? Joseph? Judah? The story continues. Is it going to be one of them? Negative. 
What about Moses or David or Solomon or Elijah? No, it's not going to be one of them either. And yet as the story continues, you start to learn in the Bible a ton about what this serpent crusher is going to be like and what he is going to do. For example, in Genesis chapter 2, you discover that this serpent crusher, this one to come that's going to get us back into a right relationship with God, he's going to be a lamb. See, many of us, if you've been around church like at all, you'll know Genesis chapter 22 because it's the moment that Abraham stands above his son Isaac with a dagger in his hand and is about to strike him and kill him. It's exactly what God has asked him to do. It's a test of faith for Abraham. And just as he's about to plunge the dagger in, an angel stops him and says, No! And he notices there is a ram caught in the thicket and the Lord makes it clear that the ram is to be sacrificed instead of his son. You know, at the end of that ordeal in Genesis chapter 22, it says, on the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. Abraham understood that on the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. That's something echoed by Jesus in John 8 verse 56, when he says, Abraham saw the day of Christ and rejoiced. Something happened on that mount thousands of years ago, where Abraham saw the day of Christ, understood the Lord is going to provide, and it appears he's going to be a lamb. A sacrifice. Somebody that's going to come in our place. You know, it's kind of curious that in Genesis chapter 22, Abraham and Isaac went on a three-day journey to get to this Mount Moriah. Many historians believe that Mount Moriah actually became the place of Calvary. So the Lord really did provide on that very mount. And then you get to Genesis chapter 49, when this moment where we all like Joseph and his technicolor dream coat. Yeah, we all know about that. It's all about Joseph. Ah! No, the whole story is about Judah. Because Joseph was always being used to ultimately protect Judah. Why Judah? Well, because in Genesis chapter 49, we discover that that, that Judah is going to be a lion. A lion's cub is going to come from him. And he will hold a scepter and the ruler's staff until he comes to whom it belongs. So we find out this serpent crusher, he's going to be a lamb, but he's also going to be a lion. He's going to be a king. And then the story continues in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. The story of the Old Testament continues. But as the sun sets on the Old Testament, we still don't know who this serpent crusher is going to be. This lion and the lamb, who is it? And for over 400 years at the end of the Old Testament, everything just goes quiet. Until one John the Baptist, the last of the Old Testament prophets, stands on the edge of the River Jordan and points at Jesus says, behold, everybody listen. Behold, the Lamb of God, the one who comes to take away the sin of the world. In that moment, the serpent crusher had been found. And John the Baptist realized it is Jesus. It's him. He's going to do the crushing. It's him. And so when you get to John 19, which is our text for this morning, you kind of wonder what went wrong. We've all been waiting for this serpent crusher. How, how is this unfolded? What's gone wrong? He's, he's now dying. The cross would appear on face value to be a total and complete tragedy. But my friends, I want to encourage you at the cross, it was a total and complete triumph. Because right here, Jesus is indeed doing the crushing. In the book of Colossians, chapter 2, verse 15, In the NIV we read, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, 
He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them on the cross. In this moment, he was disarming Satan. In this moment, he was crushing Satan. Satan knew all along that if Jesus finished his mission, that he was done. He knew that if Jesus completed his mission, he would be crushed. All his power would be gone from him. So all throughout Jesus' life, Satan is all the time trying to entice him, trying to pull him away. Hey, come with me. Do something different. We could join forces. It'll be sweet. And eventually he comes up with this plan. You know, I know what I'm going to do. To, to get him off his mission, I'm going to kill him. Not realizing that Jesus dying was exactly the plan. Satan was used by God in this moment to ultimately be his own downfall. And so when Jesus cries out at Calvary, it is finished. He is parading Satan around in this moment, disarming Satan around in this moment, because the death knell to his power has been complete. I told you these three words had a lot of depth and meaning. There is so much going on here. A.W. Pink says it this way. He says, here at Calvary... We see the destruction of Satan's power. To human appearances, it looked like the moment of his greatest triumph. Yet in reality, it was the hour of his ultimate defeat. In view of the cross, the Savior declared, Now is the judgment of the world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. It is true that Satan has not yet been chained and cast into the bottomless pit. Nevertheless, sentence has been passed. And though not yet executed... His doom is certain and his power is already broken so far as believers are concerned. Isn't that wonderful? You know, the lightning bolt of the Savior's victory has been seen and recorded at Calvary. So now we just wait the thunderous roar of the, of the Savior of the world coming back and removing Satan from our presence for all eternity. It is finished. The battle has been won. And the search for the serpent crusher is over. His name is Jesus. And one day he's coming back. And Satan will be removed from all, for all eternity. The search for the serpent crusher, it is finished. But that's not all that took place in these words, Tetelestai, it is finished. Number two, his fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy was also finished. See, in the Old Testament, there are over 300 prophecies spoken by many different voices over 500 years. And Jesus fulfills every single one of them. And it's amazing. The Messiah has been promised, the Savior, to come. In the Old Testament, if you read it, you'll find there's over 300 prophecies that talk about his birth, his life, his work, his residence, where he's going to be born. Things that are kind of hard to orchestrate yourself. 29 prophecies in great detail give specificity about how we will die and what we will be said and what will take place. Jesus fulfills every single one of them. James Montgomery Boyce says it this way. He says, It had been prophesied that the Messiah was to be born of a woman without the benefit of a human father. And this was completed. It had been foretold that he was to be the seed of Abraham and of the line of David, that he should be born in Bethlehem, and he was so born. Prophecy had said that he should be named before he was born and that his birth would entail sorrow for others 
And both things came to pass. Old Testament writers have spoken of his flight into Egypt and the subsequent return to his own land. And it so happened. Christ's appearance was to be preceded by that of Elijah. And John the Baptist filled this role. Christ's miracles were foretold. That eyes of the blind would be opened, that ears of the deaf unstopped, and that the lame would leap as a deer and the tongue of the mute sing. And Jesus performed all these miracles. Prophecy had intimated that he would speak in parables. Now frequently this was indeed his method of teaching. Prophecy had depicted him stilling the tempest and triumphantly entering into Jerusalem, and both came to pass. He was to be despised and rejected by his own people. A friend would betray him. He was to be forsaken by his cherished disciples, led like a lamb to the slaughter. False witnesses would appear against him, and he would refuse to make a defense. He was to be unjustly condemned, sentenced to capital punishment, numbered with the transgressors, and pierced through his hands and feet. The crowd would sustain mockery of him, and soldiers were to divide his garments and cast lots for his tunic. And all this had been completed to the letter. There was nothing of all that had been written of him that was now left and done. And so indeed, it was finished. It's amazing. Over 500 years, over 300 prophecies spoken. And now he recognizes they're finished. I did them all. I fulfilled them all. You know, the last two parts of this puzzle actually happened in verses 28 and 29 and just prior in verses 23 and 24 of John 19. For example, in verses 23 and 24, we read that they divide his garments and cast lots for his clothing. The soldiers start to divide it up and they're casting lots. You know, that was prophesied hundreds of years earlier in Psalm 22. That that's exactly what would happen when the Messiah, the King to come, would die. In verse 28 and 29, we read that to fulfill the scripture, he said, I thirst. It's exactly what happened. Jesus was thirsty and so they offered sour wine to him to drink. Something that was prophesied hundreds of years earlier in Psalm 69. That's exactly the way the Messiah would die and what would take place. So now in verse 30, recognizing that all had been fulfilled, he cries out in completion. It's finished. Every single one of them done it. You know, I was a kid when I used to think that all these were just stories. It's when you realize things like this that the Bible begins to come alive. As you realize it's one story of the coming of the King. The Gospels look right at Jesus and then the New Testament starts to unpack what that all means. And Revelation looks to when he's coming back to claim his own. And Jesus fulfills every Old Testament prophecy. So when he says it is finished, it is indeed packed with depth and meaning and history. And another thing that was then finished then, number three, in this moment, that is so important for us to realize, is the reality that in this moment his suffering was finished. Which is my third point. And my friends, it's just so important that we never lose sight of, nor the wonder of this side of the cross, isn't it? See, the moment we lose the wonder of Calvary is the moment when Calvary will not amaze us anymore. In fact, grace won't amaze us anymore. His love won't amaze us anymore. 
In fact, Jesus won't amaze us anymore. When we lose sight of the depth of shame and the height of pain that the Savior was experiencing in this moment, nothing will affect us anymore. But when we gaze at him and realize what he did, which I think Easter gives us such a wonderful opportunity to do, you can't help but be overwhelmed by what he has done. It's a famous old hymn that in the chorus says, Oh, help me understand it. Help me to take it in, what it meant to thee, the Holy One, to bear away my sin. Oh, help me understand it. Help me to take it in, what it meant to thee, the Holy One, to bear away my sin. What did it mean to Jesus, the Holy One, to bear away our sin? It meant profound and sustained suffering. And we can't look away at that. See, Jesus was well acquainted with suffering, and suffering was without doubt something that marked the Savior's life. It was prophesied about in Isaiah 53 that he would be a man of sorrows. And indeed, he was. And you'd expect that the coming of the king, he'd be born into a palace. That this will be sweet. That everybody will be standing to attention. The king has come. But no, he's born into the squalor of a borrowed stable. His crib wasn't from mother care. His crib was from a farmyard. As he gets placed in a feeding trough by night. For the first few years then of his life, he's forced to sojourn in Egypt. His mum and dad, they take him to Egypt because King Herod has an edict out on his life. King Herod understands and has been informed that the Messiah, this one, the Jew that they've been waiting for, he must have been born right now. So find everybody under the age of two men, kill him. Well, an angel appears to his mum and dad and tells them that that's what's going to happen. So they flee to Egypt. So for the first few years of his life, Jesus actually grows up in Egypt. And throughout then his life and in his ministry, whatever age he was, Jesus was well acquainted with what it meant to suffer. Isaiah 53 explains that he would be a man of sorrows. And one of the things that would mean is he would be unesteemed. Esteemed he would not be. And that's what happened throughout Jesus' life. You know, we often think of him, he's just got all these crowds, he was so popular. Until you realize the motive of the crowds wasn't to please Jesus. It was to come to Jesus because of what they could get off Jesus. Help me, and then leave me alone. Do all these things for me, but leave your king's stuff. He was a man that was well acquainted with suffering, men acquainted with sorrow, people betraying him, people there for the wrong reasons. People abusing him, people mocking him, ridiculing him. That's what he lived with all of his life. And in the last 24 hours, all of that just heightened even more. See, the night before Jesus died, he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane and he goes to pray because he realizes my hour is coming. And he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane and it says in all the Gospels that in this moment, Jesus staggered. He actually fell to the ground. He's sweating drops of blood. He's so overwhelmed. 
Because as he cries out to God, it isn't heaven that opens up before him. It's the horrors of hell. As he starts to contemplate the cup that he would endure the very next day on the cross. But what he's already started to experience in this moment is what it means to be alone. And to suffer relational abandonment. He goes into the Garden of Gethsemane. He takes Peter, James and John with him. His three closest friends. And he says, listen, just sit here and pray. He walks on a little further. He's crying out to God in anguish and despair. Peter, James and John, one job, stay awake, pray. One thing they don't do, stay awake, pray. They fall asleep. He comes back three times. Guys, please, pray. This is overwhelming. Every time he comes back, they're asleep. He's already starting to experience what it means to be the shepherd and to see everybody leave him. As he goes back to them on the third time, they're still asleep. He says, guys, it's time to wake up for the hour has come. And he goes out of the Garden of Gethsemane and he sees one of his friends, Judas, one of the disciples, A man that he had given three and a half years of his life to, walking in intimacy and blessing with him. A man that just a few hours earlier, he had got on his hands and knees and actually washed his feet. Teaching him, when I'm gone, this is what I want you to do. And Judas makes his way up to him and kisses him on the cheek. A signal to the battalion. This is him! Take him! Total betrayal. Total aloneness. Just a day earlier, he explained that when I get struck, all of you will leave me. And all the disciples are indignant. We will never leave you. We are staying. In this moment, Jesus gets arrested and all of them run. The hour has come. The Savior is alone. No friend to stand by his side. And then the ordeal begins. Jesus is taken away by a battalion of soldiers. A crown of thorns is placed on his head, likely one and a half to two inch thorns, actually pushed into his skull. He's clothed in a purple robe. And then the battalion just start to have a laugh with him. You reckon you're the king? Uh Uh-huh. Let's see how you go. They blindfold him. They start to hit him around the head and hit him around the body and just start to jeer at him. You prophesy, mate. You tell us who hit you if you're the king. He's falsely tried. He's then whipped and scourged. To be scourged is basically to be whipped But to increase the pain, they would put pieces of metal or glass in the whip so that when it pulled away, it would rip flesh with it. And then after he had succumbed to all those things, he would then find himself being crucified. Nails put in his hands and his feet, stripped naked for the mockery, and the soldiers, they're all mocking. The crowds, they're all getting stuck in. He's alone. But most painful of all, it's not actually that. Most painful of all is the reality that as the sky darkened, the Father turned his face away. No wonder Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knew it was coming. 
It's what he saw in the Garden of Gethsemane. He always knew this is the way it needed to be, but he never understood what this would feel like. So he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is totally alone. Oh, help me understand it. Help me to take it in. What it meant to be. The Holy One. To bear away my sin. You know, I thank the Father that when Jesus says it is finished, I thank the Lord that his suffering was finished. This was indeed the height of pain and the depth of shame. And as Jesus cries out, it is finished. He knows it is. I've endured it all. So Father, into thy hands, I commit my spirit. My friends, I want to encourage you to never lose sight of and never lose the wonder of this side of the cross. You ever wondered how serious your sin is before the Lord? Those little white lies that we think of as no big deal, those things that we trifle with as if to say, I don't think it's that big a deal. They behold Calvary. It's a big deal. That's the price of sin. That's the consequence of sin. If you've ever wondered how amazing his grace is, behold that same place. Because he did this for you. And he did this for me. And if you've ever wondered how passionate his love is for you, look again and stare at that same place. Oh, how marvelous is his love for us. John 3.16 tells us, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. My friends, you can go ahead and insert your name there. For God so loved me. For God so loved Jeff. For God so loved Julie. For God so loved Serena. That he gave his only begotten son. So that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. My friends, I want to encourage you, never lose sight of what he went through for you. Because it's then that grace becomes amazing. It's then that love becomes profound. And it's then that you can't help but want to bow to your knees and worship him as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. When he said it is finished, his suffering was finished. And without doubt, that meant one more thing as well. It meant, number four, that his glorious work of salvation was therefore finished. What he came to do had indeed been done. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. They're the words of Jesus himself. He echoes the same thing in John 12, verse 47, when he says, For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Jesus Christ had come into the world to seek and save the lost. And that is indeed why he came. 
See, the Bible teaches us all the way through that ultimately we've been made by God. That it's him that stitched us together in our mother's womb. That he made us to find our identity and our peace and our joy in him. And so often when we don't know him, that's why we feel like something's missing. This world, it ain't quite right. I think COVID-19 teaches us that. It ain't quite right, is it? It's bust. And if we're honest, we often recognize when we're lying on our beds at night, I'm a bit bust too. Is this it? And the truth of scripture is it ain't it. You were made to have a relationship with God, your maker. You were made to find out your identity and your joy and your purpose in him. That's how it all makes sense. But each and every one of us, the Bible says, have gone astray. Each and every one of us have rejected God. We're going to stick with the kingdom, but I don't want the king. I want to enjoy what you've made, but I don't want you. And that's why we feel the way we do. That's what sin is all about. It is rebellion against our maker. It is a rejection of God himself. Because of that, the Bible tells us we're an object of his wrath. Or more illustratively, because of that, we are always outside the garden. We can never get back in. We can never get back into a relationship with God ourselves. doesn't matter how much charity you do, how much you pray, how much you read your Bible. That ain't going to get you back in the garden. It ain't enough. But we serve a God who is the God of second chances. And that's why he sent Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Jesus Christ came after us on the greatest rescue mission ever told. And when he died at Calvary in our place, saying, it is finished, access to God was now open. The way back to the garden was made, a pathway to get back in had come to fruition. And Jesus made it clear that if we put our faith in him as our Lord and Savior, then we can go ahead and go right back in. We can go back into the presence of God. We're forgiven of our sin. We're adopted back into the family of God. Hell won't be our forever home. Heaven will be our forever home. We will be with him for all eternity. And so when Jesus cries out, then it is finished. That way back to God, that way back to a relationship with your maker had been made sure. You know, what I love about the Bible is it tells us exactly what happened next. When Jesus declared in a loud voice, it is finished. When he breathed his last and then died, it says that the temple curtain in that moment was torn in two. Not from bottom to top, that would be something man can do. But from top to bottom, it was from God himself. You know, prior to this moment, the Holy of Holies in the temple would be the place where the manifest presence of God dwelt. And just once a year, one man, the great high priest, would get to go through the curtain on behalf of all the people of Israel and make a sacrifice and be with God. It was a scary moment. It was a trembling moment for that great high priest. But in this moment, God rips the curtain, ching, 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 to symbolize you, if you put your faith in Jesus, can now get in there. You can just walk straight in. You can come and spend time with God because through Jesus, you are able to be clothed in his very righteousness, meaning that you can now walk straight into the very presence of God. It is a miracle of grace. And three days later, to ensure that we understand that the Father does indeed accept the offering in its full. Three days later, Jesus rises from the dead. He has indeed risen from the dead to prove to everybody he is the king. Death can't even hold him. And the perfect sacrifice has been accepted. It is finished. He now sits at the right hand of the Father. 
where he intercedes for us, where he cares for his own through the gift of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus. And one day the Bible's clear, he's coming back and he's coming back for us. It's staggering. It is finished. The way to salvation is finished. A.W. Pink says it this way. He says, This cry then was not the despairing cry of a helpless martyr, nor was it the last gasp of a worn-out life. No, rather, this was the declaration on the part of the divine Redeemer that all for which he had come from heaven to earth to do was now done. That all that was needed to reveal the full character of God had now been accomplished. That all that was required by the law before sinners could be saved had now been performed. And that the price of our redemption was now paid in full. And so it was. Tetelestai. It is finished. My friends, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour, Maybe prior to this moment, these things didn't make a ton of sense to you. I get that. That was once upon a time me too. But I want to encourage you. It is finished. It's packed with meaning for you. Jesus Christ died at Calvary so that you may have life and that in abundance. In and of yourself, you are cut off from God. We all are in the natural because we've rejected him. But the Bible makes it clear that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our heart that he rose again, then you will be saved. It doesn't matter your story. It matters about Jesus' story. It doesn't matter what you've done. It matters what Jesus has done for you. So I want to urge you, I plead with you, put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior today and know what it is to live in the garden again to get back to your creator, to know him as father and friend and redeemer. It's life-changing. I was 20 years old when I did that, and I've never looked back. Please do it. And if we can help you with that in any way, if you want to talk more about that, you can come and find me at the end of the service or speak to the person who brought you. Anything we can do to serve you. If you want us to pray with you, talk to you more about Jesus, we'd love to do that. And my friends, if you do know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, never lose the wonder. Never lose the wonder of all that he has done. It is finished. May we never lose the wonder. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for being with us this morning. I do thank you that as we preach the word and as we spend time around your word, your spirit brings it to life for us. Lord, I thank you for that. Lord, I pray that what we have heard preached today, I pray that it would affect each and every one of us in our hearts. Lord, for those that don't know you, but even now as we sing, would they turn from their sin and put their faith in you as Lord and Savior, understanding that you who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Oh, Lord, for the rest of us, as we sing, oh, my, would you receive all the glory? You came after us when we rejected you. You died for us when we deserved that death. May we never lose the wonder. May we never lose the wonder. What a king. What a redeemer you are. In Jesus' name.